Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, all. Kara here, and I just wanted to let you know right at the top of the show how excited I am that Talk Nerdy is sponsored this week by Mel Science, a subscription service that offers monthly science boxes combining hands-on experiments with VR and AR technologies to engage kids in studying science, but not just kids, really kids of all ages. I had the opportunity to play to play and learn from the medicine box. And it is amazing. I was able to learn how to take blood pressure, to listen to my own chest with a stethoscope, to learn all about pulse ox and even more. And it's not just medicine. There are chemistry sets, physics sets, and they're really in-depth and fascinating. Science is all about exploration, experiments, discovering, and asking questions. This all comes naturally to your kiddos, less so to adults, but Mel Science inspires it nonetheless. And get this, right now, oh, I'm so excited. If you visit the Mel Science website and use my promo code NERDY, you will get 60% off your first order. That's M-E-L-Science.com and use my special promo code NERDY or visit my website and look at the show notes for a special link. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, February 14th, 2022, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. You know what that means. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. And if you're listening to this late Sunday night or early Monday morning, you still have time to go out and grab a card, some flowers, <laughs> if you've completely forgotten. Um, today's episode, I think, is... Um, especially relevant on Valentine's Day. You will find out why in just a minute. But before we dive into it, I do want to thank those of you who support the show. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download as long as I keep cranking out episodes. Eight years, y'all. What? Um, and that's because I do really rely on the support of listeners just like you. You keep this show going. And so I want to give a shout out to my top patrons this week. They include Daniel Lang, David J.E. Smith, Mary Neva, Brian Holden, Christopher Pitts, Dudas Infinitas, Gabriel F. Jaramillo Gonzalez, June Sapara. Leonard Prince, and Ulrika Hagman. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart. If you're interested in supporting the show, all you've got to do is visit patreon.com slash talknerdy, or you can go to talknerdy.com. You can see all of the episodes there, and you can learn more about how to pledge your support. All right. So in honor of Valentine's Day, actually, it's not really. This is kind of a fluke, but it is pretty funny. Um, I have a great chat today. I had the opportunity to talk to Florence Williams. Now, Florence is the author of two previous books. Um, her first, Breasts, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And then she wrote The Nature Fix. She's also a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and has written for a ton of different outlets like The New York Times, National Geographic, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but her newest book is called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. So we're going to tell the story of her own heartbreak and then her journey to understand why she felt the way that she felt from all the way from her biology to her genetics to her psychology and what she could, of course, do about it. So a little bit of a different uh, Valentine's Day, a Valentine's Day with a twist, but one that is relevant to each and every one of us. So without any further ado, here she is, Florence Williams. Well, Florence, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Kara. Thanks for having me on. So I'm really excited to talk about your newest book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. And what a personal and scientific <laughs> journey 
it is. Um, this is such a different approach to science writing. I was so thrilled when it came across my desk because as somebody who studies psychology, um, but works heavily in a sort of skeptic role in some of the other podcast work that I do and, and some of the advocacy and, and um, really activism that I do, I often find that I don't know, sort of the hard sciences, the the wet sciences, a little bit of turning their nose up to the psychological sciences. And and I find sometimes even within the um, skeptic community that like feelings and emotions have somehow like they have um, a negative connotation. They're carried like they're bad words, like we must be critical and we must use logic and reason and emotion is antithetical to logic and reason, which I do not believe is the case at all. So I'm very happy that you dug into the connections in your book between the physical, the psychological and the stuff that you cannot separate because it's inextricably linked. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I feel the same way. I mean, emotions haven't really gotten their due. I mean, they're starting to, <laughs> you know, compared to where I think, you know, where psychology even was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago through the, right. the important role that emotions play um, in our physical health. And I, I felt like it, you almost had to write a personal book um, in order to convey, um, you know, this sort of weight behind that statement you know, by, by writing in the first person, by talking about my own heartbreak, um, you know, I, I think the science, you know, in some ways helped ground the narrative for me journalistically and helped. But I also think that the personal story really served the science. It went both ways. Was that a departure for you? Because this is what your third book, you've written, you know, a fair amount of pieces in um, different outlets. And, you know, as somebody who has written quite a lot of science, it, was it odd for you to kind of peel back that curtain and expose yourself in that way? Uh, it, it, it both was and wasn't different. My other two books were also written in the first person, um, but loosely and, and not very much. You know, a little bit goes a long way. But I'm used to kind of using my own body uh, almost as a proxy um, for talking about, you know, for example, the effects of um, toxic chemicals, you know, on breast milk. I had my own breast milk analyzed for that. Uh, in the Nature Fix, I went around wearing an EEG cap to record my brain waves in different environments. Um, you know, not not as a way to just like talk about myself, but but hey, we all have brains and, and this is how they work. And I'm going to present this in a first person way, you know, as a way to be sort of conversational and sometimes funny. Um, and hopefully keep people engaged. So with this book, you know, it was the same impulse, um, only I had to go much deeper. I had to really, as you say, roll that curtain back even more, um, you know, to tell a very intimate and, and in some ways, you know, difficult story. And difficult it was. I mean, clearly it was difficult in that it was the impetus to dig into these these um, explanations and these uh, experiences, but also difficult in that there was both, or I shouldn't say both because I'm contributing now to this like binary, but there was this um, exceedingly biological, psychological, biopsychosocial experience that you had um, in loss. You know, this this is a book about love, but it's also a book about, in some ways, the antithesis to that or the the counterbalance to that, which is which is heartbreak, which is loss. And so maybe before we get into what you learned through the process, you can tell us a little bit about um, about that loss. Yeah, sure. I, th I think it is important <laughs> to at least, you know, nod to it. Um, I had been married for 25 years, had just turned 50, uh, but had actually met the man who would be my husband when I was 18. So we were actually together for three decades, like my entire adult life. And, uh, you know, what happened is that we got to a point where he said to me, you know, I, I think I need to go find my soulmate. And you're oh my not God. it. And uh, so it was a surprise. It was devastating. Um, you know, it was, it was the, you know, I'd never experienced heartbreak before because I had been with one person for so long, starting in my teens. Uh, and I, I was just really knocked out by not just the emotional impact of it, but how my body responded and how my body registered, you know, that pain. And so I had trouble sleeping. 
I lost a ton of weight that I didn't want to lose. Um, and, and I started getting sick. So the way I describe it in the book is that I, I kind of felt like I was plugged into a faulty electrical outlet. You know, there's this feeling of intense agitation and fear, you know, like what's going to happen to me now? What's my future? Um, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to be alone. Um, but also this feeling of exhaustion, you know, so agitation and exhaustion and and my body just being incredibly stressed out. And so I I knew when I was getting sick, I, I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, which was type one diabetes as an adult. It was pretty unusual. Um, I knew that, you know, I needed to get better as soon as possible. And I also really wanted to understand what was happening, you know, on a cellular level, what was happening to my immune system. There was so much art about heartbreak, but there was so little science. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I noticed that Helen Fisher did a blurb on your book, and she's probably, if I were to think of somebody who's written, you know, most extensively uh, or extensively about like love and yes. about the neuroscience of love, she's kind of who I would point to. And sadly, I think that she doesn't get the respect. I mean, I think she does get respect in certain circles. And in other circles, unfortunately, I think a lot of neuroscientists are like, oh, yeah, that's just too subjective. That's just, it's it's not really our purview to go there. And so it it doesn't even get talked about because it's hard to talk about. And I get it. Like I mentioned before, I'm, you know, I'm working on my PhD in, in clinical psychology. And I worked with a professor for some time at my university on some research that she was doing into creativity. And it was frustrating because what is creativity? How do you operationally define it? And once you do, how the hell do you study it? I mean, there's a reason I think that scientists shy away from these things because they're ineffable to a certain extent. And yet, there's an increasing recognition of the incredible importance of human attachment in determining so much of how we move through the world, right? So much of our grief and our hope and our sense of community and our sense of self. These things are all really so influenced and informed by the deep attachments we have in our lives. And so I do think there's an increasing recognition of this. Um, it's a fascinating area of study. You know, more and more we're becoming aware that loneliness, for example, has a real, a real effect on how healthy people are. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's it's a, it's it, it, it's as significant a risk factor for early death and disease as smoking and obesity. And yet it's only recently sort of gotten that kind of recognition. Absolutely. You know, I feel like in the mental health field, we've long known that loneliness, um, isolation is probably the number one risk factor for um, for kind of a difficult recovery path. But yeah, it's taken a while within sort of the broader medical community to see that something that's not often even asked about in a clinical interview and one of our biggest, one of society's sort of biggest health challenges right now is is addiction, an opioid addiction. And, uh, you know, there's a really direct link, actually, between craving, you know, this sort of, um, you know, opioid engagement and the stimulation and receptors looking for a drug. Direct correlation to looking for love and looking for attachment. These are the same receptors. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And I mean, it really kind of opens up so many opportunities. And as you sat down to write this book, did you write the whole thing after the fact or did you write it as you were sort of coping and and growing and healing as a as a mechanism to do so? A little bit of both, I would say. I, I did a lot of the reporting and research, you know, right away as it was happening to me. So for example, you know, I, I have an interview, I had a meeting um, a couple of meetings with Helen Fisher right after the split. And I was like, Helen, please tell me what is happening to my brain. And she said, oh, kiddo, <laughs> sit down, have a cup of tea. I'm so sorry you're going through this. Let me explain to you what's happening. Um, you know, so so for me, as someone experiencing heartbreak in the moment, it was, it was really helpful and validating, you know, to talk to these scientists, um, all of whom, by the way, said to me, Oh, you poor dear, you know, I've also gone through heartbreak. Let me tell you about my heartbreak. 
<laughs> and um, so it was very humanizing, you know, I think for the book to, to present present the scientists in a sort of human way. Um, and I did some of the writing, you know, early on, but a lot of that writing I had to rewrite <laughs> sure, you know, sure. later, like years later with the perspective of, you know, not feeling quite so raw and in the middle of it. Yeah, it's, it's always so interesting. One of the things I often discuss with my patients in therapy is this idea that like it's the difference between sort of after the fact hindsight and being in something and, and the perspective shift that occurs once you're sort of out of it or once you've grown through it and how it's very hard for us. And so this must have been a challenge for you. I, I, I mean, I'm making an assumption, but um, based on my own anecdotal experience and a lot of sort of for, first person reporting from working with patients, it's very hard to empathize with your past self. It's very hard to sort of put yourself in your own shoes at a time when your emotions were overwhelming because your hindsight later sees a clarity that and a perspective that you just don't have at that time. I think that's probably true. And it also just presented challenges from a literary perspective because you don't necessarily want to write from the sort of raw emotion. You don't want to write from the wound as much as from the scar. Um, if you're trying to write something that's, you know, readable, <laughs> yeah. you need, the writer, I think, needs a certain amount of distance. Now, I mean, I was still writing it, you know, relatively soon after the split, but but there's a big difference between sort of doing the revisions and the rewrites, you know, two and three years later, um, as opposed to like, you know, weeks and months later. Right. This is not a book of like emo song lyrics. This is like an actual <laughs> investigation. And so, you know, I, I usually think as a practitioner about um, experiences from a binary sort of perspective. I often think about the assessment and then I think about the intervention, right? Like what is going on? I want to understand exactly, you know, um, what's happening in my brain, in my body. I want to know, is this pathological? Is this normal? And then beyond that, what can I do about it? You know, how can I, how can I feel peace? How can I feel safety? And so I'm curious, is that I mean, maybe not in the moment, but is that sort of a way that you conceptualized or do you have a sort of different um, protocol as a journalist? No, I think absolutely. You said it perfectly that, um, you know, it was through the reporting and the researching and the trying to understand, please help me understand what's happening to my body. Um, that in itself was very helpful to me just personally. Um, it's how I, you know, process questions in my life you know, sort of through the lens of science journalist. <laughs> um, I think it it helped give me a, maybe a little bit of detachment, which was great. You know, it's like, let's engage my cognitive system here. I want to know, want to understand. Um, and then it also, I think, you know, really opened up all these doors to the healing journey itself. Like now that I know what I need to do to feel better, um, this is going to help me, you know, sort of map the road from here on. Right. So yeah, maybe we can even kind of take this conversation into that conceptualization. Like we can start with some of the insights, the sort of assessments that you discovered as you went. And then and then after that, we can talk a little bit about the interventions, you know, the, the things that you learned, the tools that you learned to try and, and achieve that peace, achieve that safety and, and start that healing journey. So early on, you're broken, right? You're feeling completely fractured and you're wondering, not only why do I feel so ill in my mind, but why do I feel so ill in my body? So, so what were some of the first people, you mentioned you reached out to Helen Fisher because she's sort of the obvious go-to, yeah, like she's she the love neuroscientist. Weeks, <laughs> weeks after the split, she said, I, you know, you know, she called me kiddo. She's 20 years older than me. She's, you know, completely warm, lovely person. She's like, listen, kiddo, I can tell you what's happening. Um, you know, she, she has done one of the few studies actually putting um, dumped people, <laughs> people rejected by love in a brain scanner. Um, it's showing them pictures of their sort of rejecting beloved, you know, scanning their brains and, and seeing that um, where their brains are active is in sort of two interesting areas. One is in the area of craving and addiction. So, you know, just because you've lost love doesn't mean that you stop loving that person. You know, you're still 
missing them. You're sort of in some ways craving them. Your your body is sort of craving them because your bodies co-regulate. You know, this is the person you've slept next to for three decades and your heart rates are the same and your respiration levels are the same. Um, your cortisol levels align, you know, in the mornings and the evenings. Um, so, so when that pr- kind of primary attachment figure disappears, your body sort of freaks out. It's like, wait, where is that co-regulating force in my life? Where is that sense of security? Um, where's that sense of safety? Um, where's my home base? You know, feels like it's suddenly gone. And so, the other place in your brain that really gets active, um, you know, is 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 the brain region associated with physical pain. Very similar to what's happening when you experience emotional pain. You know, and it does feel physical. It does feel physical. And, and, you know, poets tell us this all the time. I mean, the metaphors of heartbreak, like literally, they're about pain and they're about being broken. And, and, and it's that way because our brains take social pain incredibly seriously. Uh, you know, as human animals, we need these people around us in order to be safe. And our, our nervous systems know that. There's safety in numbers. Um, we need close people around us, you know, to help us raise our young and to help us cooperatively hunt and make meaning and culture, all of these things. So that really validated what I was feeling, you know, which was this feeling of being unsafe. And it became clear to me that, you know, when we're left by someone like that, our primary attachment figure, um, our nervous systems kind of respond as if we are literally left alone on the savanna and we're being circled by hyenas because in our deep human past, that is in fact what it meant to be alone. You were less right. safe. It's a threat. It's a legit. And it's not just that you're less safe, but you're like actively experiencing threat. You're very vulnerable. Yeah. And so your your body, you know, you, you're pumping out all these stress hormones. Your body is, is really going into fight or flight because it's expecting that that's what's going to happen. doesn't make the distinction, you know, that this is just a social rejection. So it started to sort of make sense to me that way. It became clear to me that um, in order to heal, I was first going to have to learn how to calm down, not be so um, acutely, you know, threatened. Uh, and so one of the next people I spoke to uh, was this fascinating researcher, psychologist at the University of Utah, Paula Williams, who studies what makes people more resilient in the face of you know, life's tragedies. Uh, because if you look at the statistics, um, the health statistics for people who are divorced, which unfortunately I did, and it was really a bummer, um, you know, people who are divorced have like the worst health outcomes of anyone, like more so than people who are always single, more so than people in bad marriages, more so than widows and widowers. Wow. More so than bad marriages? That that really surprises me. I know. I know. Hmm. Well, it depends how bad the marriage is. I mean, if you feel like, if you feel physically threatened in your marriage. Right. If it's abusive um, and you're dealing with those kind of adverse. Yes. But if it's sort of like a, you know, just like a medium sort of bad marriage, but, but in a predictable way. Um, I mean, there are bad health outcomes associated with that. Don't get me wrong, but but it's still worse if you're newly divorced. Uh, you know, twenty three percent increased risk of early death, twenty four percent increased risk of heart attack for like the next nine years, um, increased risk of um, diabetes and uh, dementia. I mean, it just goes on and on. But she said to me, "Look, we know some people, you know, just really sail through this and are more resilient. And I, you know, I just kind of leaned forward and I said, please tell me who, who these people are. (laughs) What's the secret sauce? Because I want to be one. I need to feel better. Uh, And she said, uh, well, what we are finding in our lab is that it's the people who are able to really appreciate beauty and cultivate beauty, cultivate awe. Um, These are the people who are able to make the most sense of their tragedies, sort of tell themselves stories, you know, in which they come through okay. Yeah, I mean, that that just, it it aligns so deeply with sort of the, the literature on existential psychotherapy and this kind of idea of meaning-making, this idea of like, you know, I often think about it like, again, here comes my binary self, um, very human of me, um, that, you know, 
oftentimes in in psychology, but also I think in medical um, in the medical community as a whole, we look at diagnostics. We look at quote pathology, and we think about how do we make it better? How do we fix it? How do we how do we take this quote bad thing and improve it or or you know overcome it? But I think what we often don't think about is that the equal and opposite side of that equation is what is right. What is going well? Where are the strengths? And how do we lean into those things? How do we uh, identify all the good that is happening, even amongst this background of garbage? And how do we find the meaning and the hope and the and the joy in the, the good? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And people were telling me, "Oh, there is this thing, you know, post traumatic growth. It's mm-hmm. possible." And you know, at the time, I was like, uh, "Really? I don't believe it. It doesn't." You know. <laughs> I don't. How is this ever going to feel good? Um, but I, I was someone who was already prone to, you know, appreciate nature, you know, mm-hmm. as a source yeah. of beauty. Um, had written this book, The Nature Fix. I was like, yeah, if anything can cure me, maybe it's nature. Um, but that conversation with her really did determine the course of the next two years, as I sort of desperately tried to find beauty. You know, if this was going to be the cure to my heartbreak. I was going to get on it. Bring it on. Bring me some beauty. I was ready. I love that. And so as you sort of dug into this this new journey to find beauty, right? To 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 lean into awe. Um you also continued to learn about what was going on in your mind and your body. You continued to talk to different uh, researchers, right? Like everything from neuroscientists to psychologists to even like anthropologists to try to understand, you know, what's going on with me. As as you went through that journey of of self discovery, um, was there anything that really surprised you? Kind of like that divorce statistic really really surprises me. Um, was there anything like that that felt almost counterintuitive or like, oh my god? Seriously? Well, I think you know one of the central sort of scientific investigations in the book was uh, working with a geneticist, uh, an immunogeneticist named Stephen Cole at UCLA. And uh, as I was trying to understand why I was getting sick, he said to me, um, you know, we have been, my lab has been investigating um, why it is that lonely people are dying earlier and getting sick. And, you know, we analyzed 200 genes in the genome that we think are, are particularly linked these white, in these white blood cells, these transcription factors that turn our genes on and off, um, that are really changing the immune profile of people who report feeling lonely. And he said, why don't you come into the lab and we'll look at your blood and we'll see what's going on with your white blood cells and, and then we'll do it again you know, in six months or 12 months, and then we'll do it again after that. And we'll see if you're actually able to sort of work your way out of heartbreak. <laughs> and I thought that was fascinating. And and the reasons that he told me our immune system changes, I thought were really surprising and fascinating. Uh, and, and it's mostly that when people feel lonely, when they feel like they're alone in the world, uh, they're, they upregulate genes for inflammation. And it's probably because, you know, their bodies think that they are literally walking through the jungle by themselves and they are perhaps about to be attacked by a predator or they're about to get injured. So their bodies are preparing for a flesh wound. But the reason um, these other changes happen is that, you know, our immune systems unfortunately cannot do everything. I mean, it's a limited resource. And so if they're putting a lot of a lot of um, energy into inflammation, they're actually going to turn down the transcription factors, um, the genes for fighting viruses. <laughs> so, um, so we turn up inflammation, we turn down virus fighting capability, um, which is why people with HIV, for example, who he spent years and years studying, um, if they say that they don't have enough social support, um, they produce fewer T cells. They progress to full-blown disease faster and they die earlier. Uh, we're seeing this also now in studies with chimps um, who are given um, SIV, simian immunovirus deficiency, and a virus. And then, uh, and then if they're socially isolated, if they're placed in cages by themselves, they also progress um, to disease more quickly. So 
Um, I thought that was fascinating. I thought his sort of evolutionary explanation was fascinating that, you know, maybe we're about to get attacked by a beast. Um, at the same time, because we're alone, we don't need the virus protection because viruses are spread in groups. But of course, it turns out to be exactly the wrong response, um, you know, for sort of living in modern life. Yeah, where we're not going to be like injured on the street simply because we're, I mean, we may be, but it's not, yeah, our risk is, is a lot different. And in fact, guess what? There's a pandemic. <laughs> so so we need the viral protection. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because it it's an explanation that doesn't require a specific genetic um like a gene locus. Because what I was concerned about and what I'm often concerned about, I see a lot, is this like this desire to like what's the gene for loneliness right like right. like where in your genome are lonely people like they must they must have more or they must have a mutation on this one region and not lonely people must not and you know i think it's such a simplistic view and it's it, i was worried about the kind of um uh, formula that way but this idea that you know, it's obviously a, a multi-genetic phenomenon that's has much more to do with your sympathetic nervous system and, you know, upregulation and downregulation of multiple genes that are involved in your immune response. Um, and exactly what you said, it makes so much sense, this idea that sort of the same immune system is responsible for fighting viruses that's responsible for keeping a, a wound clean really what we're talking about are epigenetics, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. um, you know, our our immune systems are brilliant in that they are designed to respond to real-time events. Yeah, they're fast. Um, they're fast. These are, you know, white blood cells get made in your bone marrow. They get released, you know, every day. And they're going to change. Um, you know, the, the sort of formula for those cells is going to get changed depending on your circumstances. So grief and loneliness are actually epigenetic factors predisposing us to illness. Right. They're they're sort of they're behavioral. They're things that exist that influence the upregulation, the downregulation, the right. turning on, the turning off of genes. And um in in a profound way, it sounds like. I'm I'm yes. I'm actually really curious. I don't know if you sort of got to the bottom of this or if there is a bottom of this to get to, but of course I'm asking very selfishly and narcissistically. I am somebody who spends a lot of time alone and I love being alone. And I actually struggle with traditional relationships because of that. And I'm sort of, you know, if I personally think I'm, I'm pretty um, healthily attached, but I probably tend towards avoidant attachment style <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, and so I feel like my experience is very different from, from a lot of the people that I talk to a lot of the people that I know who need much more sort of human connection. I do need it. I mean, I am still a social creature and I love it, but I also require a lot of rebound time by myself after. And it's yeah. very hard for me to share a space with people. And yeah. I'm wondering, you know, what's the explanatory, you know, obviously, I think there's behavioral explanations and developmental explanations. But what did, for example, the geneticist or the or the yeah. anthropologist say about those differences, those individual differences? I mean, I did learn a little bit about that. Um, I mean, it makes sense that, you know, we all have very different personalities. We have different needs. Um, you know, humans are incredibly variable uh, in, in how, how we have relationships, how we pursue relationships. Um, and loneliness is a concept I learned that is really subjective. So it's, it, you know, it's not the same as social isolation. Loneliness is a feeling. That right. You can be alone and not feel lonely. Exactly. You can yeah. be in a marriage and feel lonely. For sure. You can be in a city and feel lonely. Or you can be alone and feel like, oh my God, I love being alone. Like you said, I, I can get so much work done and I get a lot of fulfillment from my creative mind that can you know run wild when I'm not distracted and so on and so forth. If you feel comfortable and great and safe in your you know, sort of a somewhat isolated state, then you're not mm -hmm. going to feel like you're threatened. Right. Um, so your your immune system is probably just great. And in fact, um, this was so fascinating. What Steve Cole told me is that he thinks the antidote to loneliness is not necessarily sociality or sociability. The antidote to loneliness is purpose and mission. 
Oh, so if I love you are that. feeling, you know, that you are really fulfilled in a sort of cosmic sense, like that is the best thing for your immune system. I thought that was really fascinating. And that makes a lot of sense, too, because I think that, you know, there, there are so many different, like you said, personality factors, and there's introversion and there's extroversion. There's a million different ways to slice and dice this. And some people get overwhelmed with too much stimulation, and, and they need that time. And other people require a lot of stimulation to, to kind of reach a baseline. Um, but this idea of, of meaning of purpose and and a lot of existential psychologists divided into sort of two different buckets. We have our meaning in the experience, so the day-to-day, everything we do, you know, am I finding awe in in these like small things? And then the sort of horizon purpose, that thing you can never quite reach, like the greater meaning of your life. Um, and if you have a foot in both of those pools, um, whether you're alone or with others or hopefully finding a balance between the two, um, there's a fulfillment. I guess that's what it is, right? It's a fulfillment. Yeah, your body just loves that. <laughs> your white blood right. cells love it if you are, you know, feeling like your life has meaning, you know, like you're going places you want to go, um, like you're connected and sort of engaged to you know, these cosmic questions, you know, that you're pursuing, um, you know, if you feel sort of spiritually fulfilled and, and part of that means, you know, fulfilled in your mission, whatever, you know, purpose is, is another one of those ineffable words, but, but your body somehow seems to know when you have optimism about the world and about your place in it. Well, and it's, it probably does translate to a safety, a sense of calm. This is why interventions like mindfulness, like breathing techniques, like grounding techniques can really be important for anxiety and especially for chronic stress, right? Because when you're grounded and you start to feel a sense of security and safety, a foundation, um, a lot of those those sort of Robert Sapolsky, why zebras don't get ulcers, right? Like chronic inflammatory responses are quieted. That's right. And you see, you know, even in sort of monks, you know, and spiritual leaders who do live alone or, you know, are not, you know, in personal close relationships, um, they're super healthy, you know, if you look at their immune systems and, um, in terms of you know what their what their nervous systems are doing, um, you know it looks really good. Ah, oh, you know this this now I want to do a study. I am I am inspired now because I'm curious if we look at. I, I'm very interested in aging um, because I work in in cancer and in end of life kind of therapy, and I'm I'm curious if we were to look at um, older individuals who either struggle with loneliness because we know that this is a it's almost an epidemic amongst older individuals because of the way that we do elder care in our country um so those who struggle with loneliness and have a lot of the associated health consequences and if we were also to look at older people who sort of identify as or fall under the model of i don't know have you heard much about gerotranscendence no, what is that? So there's this fascinating it's it's sort of in developmental psychology, you know, as you were looking through like attachment style and stuff like that. I mean, we often see that developmental psychology there's a lot of time spent on youth, right? There's all these individual stages from age 3 to 4, this is what happens from 4 to 5 this and then by the time we're like 30, we're like and then you're old. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> talks big. about the differences, right? Um and so Eric Erickson, who's one of the the most famous sort of developmental psychologists, as he was aging and dealing with severe dementia, his wife um continued to you know, she carried the torch a lot, actually just didn't get credit, but she continued to carry that torch and write about this later in life phenomenon, which was then picked up by this guy named, I think, Lars Torstum. And the idea is that in gerotranscendence, you see a very specific phenomenon where some older individuals feel very um, uh, at peace. They are very much tapped into this idea of awe and meaning and purpose, but they they increasingly spend more and more time alone. Hmm. And they yeah. mm -hmm. they don't want to engage in sort of 
worldly, you know, they disengage from technology very often. They they like to spend more time in nature. It's a lot of like self-contemplative, meditative time. And and within this sort of slice of the population, there are very positive mental health outcomes, but only particular people that's find really themselves. fascinating. Yeah. In this Well, in that this. seems aligned with, mm-hmm. you know, what Paula Williams was telling me about oh, this it would be capacity for beauty. Yes, it would be so cool to see if if you really can find a distinction between those in geotranscendence and those struggling with lo- loneliness. Well, you should work with Dr. Cole and and check, <laughs> take a look at their 200 transcription factors. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh, so they really are digging deep into the genome. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what you looked at your own, right? Were you kind of were you just full of inflammatory factors? Oh, yeah, I was. Um, In fact, he said that, you know, my first blood sample, you know, pretty close after my marriage fell apart was um, he said, yeah, you you have the blood of a lonely person. Oh, my God. (laughs) like, ouch. Um, and then, you know, I tried all these things to get better. Um, and some of them moved the needle on my white blood cells, made them look better. Some of them didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was super interesting. I'm, I'm curious as somebody who, um, really respects the scientific method and really is a firm believer in evidence-based treatment and has, you know, a hard skeptical bent, but also as somebody who works within a field that doesn't have a lot of evidence supporting it simply because it doesn't lend itself to the classic randomized controlled trial model, um, you know, which is individual long-term psychotherapy. It's just very hard to study because it's so particularly tailored to the individual and especially these sort of humanistic existential interventions. I'm really curious, you know, you did a lot you everything from like psychedelics to like uh, different you know psychological interventions to these like sort of like spending more time in nature did you find anything that felt like patently pseudoscientific was there anything that was like okay this is snake oil this is sort of clearly practitioners or charlatans are preying on lonely people and well, taking advantage of them yeah a little bit i mean i felt like some of these sort of myths um the sort of bromides the standard advice you kind of hear about heartbreak I felt like some of them were kind of, for me, you know, just empty and, and in fact, didn't have a lot of science behind them. Whereas there were other things that you're told sort of not to do that, um, that, that actually worked and there was science behind those things. So one example of that is, you know, I, I think often in, you know, after long marriages end, you hear this advice that, oh, you shouldn't jump into another relationship too soon. Um, oh, I love and- the rebound. <laughs> I find the rebound go. is very healing I'm all for about me. The right, but 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 so many people would say, "Oh, you need to love yourself first. You need to heal right. yourself first. Um, and I was like, eh, "I don't know. Um, you know, where's the science? Where's the science that says I shouldn't have a rebound? And in fact, there's some good science saying you should have <laughs> nice. a rebound. That people good for who self-esteem. have a rebound, it's good for self-esteem. It's good for self-confidence. Um, you know, that physical touch actually does." calm your nervous system if it's someone you trust. Um, and, you know, that's maybe a high bar these days on the dating market. But if, <laughs> right. if you can find someone you trust um, and really trust, then, you're, you know, it, you'll feel safer. I mean, I, you know, I, I was checking my blood sugars, you know, after nights when I was dating people and my blood sugar was better, you know, my, my nervous system was better. And a lot of um, it has to do with so, what you're trying to get out of it, right? Like, I think, Having companionship for a night versus having companionship right. for a year, like the the bar for trust is very different. Like, do I feel safe is a very different thing. Like, can I engage with this person physically or can I have a, you know, a nice time for a night or for a week or for whatever versus am I going to, you know, be vulnerable and, and give them all of my past trauma and all the things that come with <laughs> right. like a, with a right. long-term relationship. Right. Yeah, I think there's kind of a probably an, a healthy intermediary zone right. there, intermediate zone. Um, you know, if it's just a night or two, you may not feel safe at all, really. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, so that that was an example of one of the things I did that you know was kind of counterintuitive. Interesting. And so, it, what I hear in sort of that um, quote advice to sort of love yourself first, and you know, is 
I think an earnest and and legitimate um, argument for self-compassion and self-kindness, but also a pretty blatant assumption that you don't already yeah, have self-compassion, exactly. <laughs> that exactly. that's why you're alone. Exactly. It just didn't, that just didn't hit me right, you know, that yeah. kind of advice. Um, and, and another thing um, is that, you know, people say, oh, you should, you know, um, take care of yourself, self-care, self-care. Uh, you know, facials, massages, you know, right. yoga, whatever. Um, and the science isn't really there either. In fact, Dr. Stephen Cole at UCLA, um, he has looked at these white blood cells of people who do, you know, sort of um, who pursue hedonic happiness, which is sort of like pleasure, what's going to make me feel pleasurable, um, and has not found that that really has a big effect on their white blood cells or their immune systems, which is so interesting because, you know, we're sold this all the time. Like you need this face cream to, you know, get this Groupon for this facial um, so that you'll, you know, be happier. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right. It sounds like there's sort of a, a happy medium that there's, you know, if you're doing, if you're engaging in things because they help you feel safe and calm and centered yeah. and grounded, it's yeah. one like thing. Like yoga could be really beneficial. For sure. But if you're engaging and I did in a lot it, of hot baths, that's oh, great. Yeah. I love a hot bath. I take hot baths all the time. And With I don't do it because of the health benefits. You know, I do it because it feels good and because it calms me down. Well, there's and something I think, about warmth, you know, that, yeah. that is really great for as mammals. You know, we like warmth. It also helps us sleep. It does. I always feel like, yeah, I'm really tired after a bath, which is good if I'm, I'm having a hard time sleeping. Exactly. Exactly. Anything but there's this whole... There's this whole sort of like social grossness, and we especially experience it as women, right, with all the internalized sexism and misogyny and kind of patriarchy that that is is the entire human story, right? <laughs> There's a little bit of that going on. Yeah. And, and you know, this idea of sort of like you need the facial, you need the treatment, you need this like, you know, this makeup, you need these, you go buy these new clothes that... Yes, for some people can be empowering and calming and centering, and for other people just contribute to this sense of like I'm not good enough. Yeah, and like body dysmorphia. Yeah, and, um, um, sort of superficial validation, right? All of that. Whereas, you know, in the, in in the in the work that Cole has done, it, it's people who pursue eudaimonic happiness, which is this happiness that's really associated with again the purpose and the meaning, and I'm doing something, you know that is going to make a difference in the world that gives me a, you know, a reason to get up in the morning. Those are the things that may not be mirthful, cheerful, you know, experiences, but they're actually going to really make you feel better. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I like that. And now I'm trying to like square my therapeutic circle because of course, I also kind of sing the praises of self-care, but I very often use the, um, the analogy of the oxygen mask on the airplane that like right. if you don't put your mask right. on first you're not going to be able to help other people and so really it's about you have to be in a position to be able to to pursue that eudaimonic um that's uh, right yeah like if you're and, and, if you're falling and, apart you're not going to be able to go and be a part right. of the community and why you can't really heal if you're still in this acute phase of right. fight or flight right right and so what do you do though when you're in that acute phase of fight or flight. What were some of the interventions that you came across that did help you? You know, I I, I often use this like very pithy phrase. Honestly, the first five times my, um, I, I had a professor who used it a lot. And the first five times I heard it, I rolled my eyes. And now I use it all the time because it's, it's deep, even though it doesn't seem so, <laughs> is this question of like, do you have your feelings or do your feelings have you? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, obviously, post heartbreak, post trauma, post, uh, 
you know, very bad news kind of boundary experience in life, um, your feelings have you. You don't have a sense of control. You feel like you're drowning. You're you're really just trying to to kick as hard as you can to keep your head above water. And then eventually you get to a place where you can cry and you can regulate that. And it's good to have tears and it's good to feel the broad spectrum of feelings, but they feel like they are your feelings. They're not controlling you. And so you know, for me, a lot of it is in the acute phase. It's about getting to the point where you're, you have your feelings, your feelings don't have you. And then in the more chronic phase of chronic, that's a bad word, long-term phase of psychological intervention, it's about exploring and sort of going towards that purpose and meaning, that horizon. But you were in the acute phase. You were drowning. I was drowning and uh, I, 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 well, I certainly cried a lot. So then yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you're saying that was helpful. Oh, oh yeah. I think it was. I think it was. I think it was. Um, you know, for me, I had this compulsion to sort of move. Mm-hmm. I wanted to move my body. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to hear birdsong. I wanted to be able to see the horizon, you know, see the clouds. Um, those things I knew would help me feel a little calmer. And the science yeah. is is really there. And I, t- I talk a lot about that in, in my book, The Nature Fix. Um, I also meditated every day. Uh, I still am doing that. Um, I think, you know, pe- people talk about how that can help you, right? Uh, sort of have your feelings and not have them have yeah. you. If you can become kind of aware, you know, of how your your brain is working and and see these feelings, you know, rise and, and overtake you. Even just that that awareness of, of how those those feelings are working on you um, can be helpful. Um I, you know, tried to also distract myself. You know, part of that was with friends. Um, part of that was, you know, I think through the dating, you know, too. I I planned a big expedition um, and the logistics of that required so much sort of frontal cortex executive function um, that that also helped sometimes lift me out of kind of my limbic brain. Um, yeah, and I, sure. tried, I tried EMDR therapy too, which is, you know, similar in that you you um, kind of bring up your worst memories, you know, of the heartbreak or of, you know, scenes with your ex or whatever. Um, And then you do this sort of bilateral um, tapping. In this case, it was tapping, but sometimes it's eye movement back and forth um, that, you know, somehow helps decouple your, your, your big emotions from the memory itself. Yeah, I've I found EMDR to be a really curious beast because it is technically listed as an evidence-based intervention, but there's still a lot of um, skepticism as to the mechanism because it doesn't have a lot of face validity. And the best way I've heard it described was um, uh, there's a, a psychologist named Dr. Rosen who who writes about it as as though it's a quote purple hat therapy. So the way he describes it is like let's say you have somebody who is desperately afraid to drive. They have like severe phobia of driving and you teach them a lot of grounding techniques and a lot of really legitimate sort of um, uh, CBT approaches to acute anxiety. And then you put a purple hat on them and you say, this purple hat is going to protect you while you drive. And then they go drive. And of course, they fall back on all these grounding techniques and all of these tools that they've already learned. But they say, oh, the purple hat made it so that I could drive. And I worry sometimes that EMDR has a similar thing, that it's actually the therapy that's so beneficial to you. But having this like externalization or this movement or this like secondary sort of thing that makes it marketable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, is, I, I, I think that there definitely could be a placebo component to the success of, you know, anything. Um, but I, I have also seen some studies that put EMDR head to head with other forms of therapy, you know, which you think would have that same sort of, you know, therapizing benefit. Um, and the, and the people in EMDR really seem to do better. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And, and maybe there is something to be said too about externalizing when you're dealing with something that is so emotionally, um, intense, being able to externalize a little bit, being able to focus on something else while you are doing some of that processing. Well, I think that's what distance. happens with the walking yeah, and with yeah, the yeah. paddling. You know, when you're walking, it's also bilateral. When you're paddling, it's bilateral. Um, I think you're right. It's like con- it's engaging and connecting different parts of your brain. Uh, and, and in some ways, it makes sense to me that 
that the EMDR is doing the same thing except you're sitting still. Right, right. Except that there's, you know, um, there's a practitioner with with you, which in and of itself is very beneficial, right? Because there's a safety in healing with an expert. There's a safety in healing with somebody who you knew was trained and is licensed and is, you know, following all of the important protocols and who has read all of the books and and can help you if you have a panic attack right there in the room, can help you if you really start to experience some deep existential um, angst or, or um, crisis. That's right. Yeah. And did you have that ever throughout this whole process? Like, did you find that your heartbreak was ever bordering on, you know, latent mental illness, any pathology that was coming out? Or were you like, you know, this is probably the exact same experience that most everybody goes through? You know, I did have um, things like heart racing, palpitations. Mm -hmm. I had sort of eye twitching. (laughs) Um, Those to me felt like you know, sort of panic attacks or right, like worrisome. There was very high anxiety, you know, at yeah. times. Yeah. Did you find that in your life you tend towards a more anxious reaction to stressors anyway, but it never quite got that bad? You know, I never thought of myself that way mm-hmm. as struggling with anxiety until I went through this mm, uh, process. And and all of a sudden, I became a very anxious person. Right. <laughs> and I talked about this with my therapist. I said, um, you know, God, am I a really anxious person right now? Or am I an anxious person? Maybe I am, and I didn't know it. And she said, well, you know, you're circumstantially anxious. Like there's a reason you're anxious right now, but I actually think I probably am an anxious person and I just didn't really know it. You know, I had sort of these other um, pretty effective ways of coping with it Right, point where I didn't even know, like I was, you know, self-medicating. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think most people who have insight, most people who are highly motivated, who have a lot of success in their careers, who are... um, you know, have a lot of that kind of post-traumatic resilience, that is just, it's like you have, you carry these skills without even knowing it, right? That's you right. have all these coping yeah. mechanisms in your life that help you deal until with- Until they don't work. All of a sudden. Yep. <laughs> yep. Until the, until the external circumstances are so right. great that that sub, th- sub threshold, you know, your threshold's different now. That's right. And and yeah. I think that that's probably one of the the best things that therapeutically can be beneficial is just the validation and the normalization of like I'm having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, right? And that's very helpful. It gives you a sense of perspective. Yeah, um, and but also I'm 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 glad that I do know that actually maybe I am an anxious person. Right, um, right. You know, it gives me a little more self knowledge. You know, to to manage. I think. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, they're labels, right? And these are these are constructs that are designed by people that are, we work very hard to try and have these like particular cutoffs, but of course, to some extent, there's an arbitrariness to them. And so you may not be diagnosable with an anxiety disorder, but you may still tend towards a more anxious reaction to things. Right. And once you know that, you can, you know, develop more, more tools in your toolkit. Yeah. It's um, just insight, right? First comes insight, then comes action. I mean, um, I have learned so much about yeah. myself <laughs> through this process, you know, uh, in terms of my mental health, but, you know, also in terms of sort of core identity, um, in terms of my values. And that's been the kind of beautiful and redemptive part of heartbreak, that there is this journey of self-discovery. Oh, I love that. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, how much do you resonate or identify with that sort of very pithy adage that the only way out is through. Like this wasn't an overnight process for you. You had to feel it. it. Absolutely. I I identify with that wholly, completely. And I also came to feel like there is no tidy resolution. You know, there's, you know, people say, oh, I want closure. I want closure. Um, Understandable. But, you know, expect that you're only going to get maybe partial closure. And so I had this at one point, you know, after talking to a lot of experts on this and psychologists, I had this sort of realization that rather than seeking closure, what I needed to seek was a sense of comfort with not having closure. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of uh, okayness with the unknown, okayness with the gray and the ambivalence and the, and the, 
That's I right. don't, yeah. It's, I, someone who didn't need the closure quite so much. And somebody who's like really okay with where you are now. Like, I think a lot of times the quote closure comes from a desperate need to understand the mindset of the other. You know what I mean? Like, I need to know why this happened. Why did he do this? Or why are they thinking that? And how could they do this to like, me? what happened? What happened? Yeah, right yeah. That, that makes sense to me. But, but you know, what is your sort of purpose? What is your mission? What is your experience? Where do you find joy and awe? Um, you know, in some ways, that is kind of, it's an ongoing closure, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, closure absolutely. In I mean, action. that's what life is, right? It's yeah. an ongoing. And, and uh, amazingly, I think learning about this and sort of developing this comfort level was incredibly helpful when the yeah. pandemic hit. Oh, yeah. Because all of a sudden we were collectively facing, you know, this intense uncertainty, um, unpredict unpredictability. Um, nobody knew it was happening. Everybody felt anxious. And I was like, eh. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is yeah. nothing compared to our break. Like, I, 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 I can totally do this. <laughs> and, you know, it it sort of, it, it just triggers in me this um, return that I often take in therapy to the serenity prayer. And it's funny because I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm quite secular. And so, you know, depending on the patients I'm working with, sometimes I'd like to God out of the equation completely. But if they themselves are religious, we might include it, whatever. To me, it's all the same. Um, but the idea of sort of affecting change where you can, being empowered, feeling a strong sense of, of you know, uh, solution-focused approach where there is a solution to be made Right. Sitting, sitting with equanimity where you literally have no control over the situation, where it is completely beyond your control. And of course, having the wisdom to know the difference, which is the hard part. I mean, it's all hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's all hard. It's all a journey. You're not, you know, there's no sort of destination. You know, you need to work on these things all the time. <laughs> but I feel like I have more skills now and more so, insight. So do you feel... You know, I think probably the big and hard question is, do you feel different now than you did? I mean, obviously you feel different now, but are you better for it? Do you still sometimes wish that you were back in that relationship? Are you hopeful to, you know, set your own path? Kind of where do you, yeah. where do you find yourself today? Well, I, you know, it's not, um, it's not a sort of consistent state, right? Right. There's, there, it, there's no linear kind of path here. Uh, there are moments where you sort of have regrets and sadness and yearning and craving still. But overall, I would say 100%. I feel like I am a different person and I feel like I'm a better person. I feel like I am more open to feelings. I feel like I'm more present for the people in my life. I feel like I'm more empathetic. I feel like I'm a better listener. I feel like I have a greater capacity for love than I did before this experience. Oh, it just, it really resonates this kind of, um, this very existential view that sort of without loss, you really don't fully understand love, you know, without, um, without that equal and opposite force it's very hard to really recognize the depths of your capabilities and the depths of your experience. Yeah. I think, I think it just, we're not always very well taught how to be emotionally intelligent. Oh, for sure. And then it <laughs> yeah. takes something like this, you know, to sort of tear down the walls. If, like, if you have the sort of, um, uh, self-motivation and wherewithal to want to learn from it and to want to grow from it. Because sadly, something like this can also be incredibly detrimental to somebody who doesn't have either the capacity or the privilege or the support to be able to, you know, go through a personal journey like this. For some people who are really struggling with underlying mental illness or like we said, don't don't have a lot of social support, um, don't have a lot of resources. This can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I think some people back. don't recover from heartbreak. Yeah, exactly. And I I just didn't know when I started this journey, you know, if I was going to be one of those people or not. But you oh, did. I, you I have. did, and it and it really motivated me, <laughs> knowing that I that I wanted to tell myself a story in which I could be 
you know, the agent of my own future. Uh, I love it. And so I, I'm going to close with my final two questions. But before I dive into those, last question for you about your journey, about the book and about where you're at now. Who do you recommend read about this? Like where in there, you know, obviously the generally curious, sure. But if somebody is experiencing heartbreak, should they read this book during that acute phase? Should they yeah, read it absolutely. as their, they should. Okay. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot here that will resonate um, with someone who's in the throes of pain. Yeah. Um, and I think there are a lot of hopeful messages in the book. So, you know, while there are some bad statistics, some <laughs> discouraging statistics about health and about, you know, divorced people, I think ultimately there's a lot of hope here. Love it. Well, gosh, Florence, I, I know I've already kept you a couple of minutes longer than I said I would, but I was hoping you would share with us your insights on on my closing two questions that I ask everybody who comes on the show. Okay. They're kind of big picture questions. You ready for them? Okay. Yeah. All right. So I want you to think in whatever context is relevant to you right now. You know, it could be um, some something you're dealing with in your life. It could be very personal, but it could also be community, global, hell, cosmic. Number one, what is the thing that's keeping you up the most at night right now? The thing you're most concerned about, worried about, maybe even feeling a bit, you know, pessimistic or cynical about. And then on the flip side of that, to kind of lighten things up, um, where are you finding your hope, your optimism? What are you truly, authentically um, looking forward to? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say right now, like a lot of people, I have pretty acute distress about um, the state of democracy. Uh, you know, and and sort of our capacity to live together in a diverse society um, in a way that, you know, protects everyone's rights and individuality. And I, I worry about that. I worry about our ability to live through our divisions. Um, but I would I would say I get the most hope right now from my children and other young people who are so politically engaged um, and so knowledgeable and they care so much that I feel like, you know, if anyone can pull us out of these holes that we're in, it's going to be this emerging generation. Here, here. Well, everyone, the book is Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey by Florence Williams. Florence, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you, Kara. It's been such a pleasure. And everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.